Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, broadcasting remotely. Town leaders and Connecticut residents have been following the latest number of COVID-19 cases in our state and whether the positivity rate or community spread of the virus is on the rise. These data points are important in congregate settings too, like nursing homes, state psychiatric facilities, and in prisons. Today where we live, we talk about COVID-19 with Angel Kiros, the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction. He's worked his way up in the DOC from correctional officer to warden and most recently as deputy Commissioner of Operations and Rehabilitative Services before being named Interim DOC Commissioner this summer after Roland Cook left. Last month, Governor Lamont nominated Kiros to be the Commissioner of the agency. The Connecticut General Assembly is expected to take up his nomination during its regular session starting in January. Now, have you or someone you know had experience inside one of the state's correctional facilities? What questions do you have for DOC Commissioner Kiros? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Angel Kiros to our show. Again, he's Commissioner-Designate of the Connecticut Department of Correction. Commissioner Kiros, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I want to jump right in because we know COVID is on the minds of many of us. I understand uh, uh, just last week, I believe, uh, Connecticut prison officials were monitoring a coronavirus outbreak in Hartford Correctional Center where 56 incarcerated people tested positive but not showing symptoms, according to uh, one of your spokespersons for the Department of correction. And I wanted to start there. When we hear about uh, the second wave starting in our state, what are you doing to help prevent more cases within our prison system? So before I start, I just want to make sure that um say thank you to Governor Lamont for giving me this opportunity uh, to be the commissioner, next commissioner of correction. As far as COVID-19, the second wave, you are correct. We had an incident uh, probably two weeks ago at ACC where uh, a staff member who was positive via contact tracing, uh, we were able to go into the dorms and do mass testing of two dorms and 56 individuals uh, came back uh, uh, asymptomatic. Asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. We immediately went to our uh, phase three lockdown of the uh, COVID operation plan. Uh, uh, no visits, no contractors, no volunteer, just strictly the uh, correctional staff that are assigned to that facility. Uh, uh, it is um, our priorities to make sure that uh, uh, once that spread is identified, that we do everything we can to uh, uh, contain the spread. Um, the difference between the first wave and second wave, uh, of course, is the PPE. Back on the first wave in March, uh, for example, we had 3,595 masks um, last week. The last inventory numbers that we had was over 100,000. MP95 mask. So the PPE for the staff is there, for the inmate population is there. Got to make sure that we stay stay on top of the uh, uh, cleanliness of the facility, uh, uh, the 
cells, the dorms, the hallways, anything the offender or staff member could place their hands on. Uh, 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 the mass, the big difference this second time around is going to be the mass testing, as you know, mm. or may not know, we just completed a third round uh, of staff testing. We're in the middle of a third round of offender testing. Uh, uh, we will start the fourth round of staff testing on uh, um, October 28th, which I believe is this Thursday. And as soon as we finish the third round with the inmate population, we will be going right back in and start the fourth round. There's also a, a mass testing going on at each facility. If an offender is going to transfer from one facility to another uh, within 72 hours, that offender has to be tested and the result has to be rendered. Uh, uh, anytime an offender is being sent out into the community for uh, a visit to the hospital sites, there's a, a COVID test. And anytime we're releasing an offender, whether it's EOS, or to halfway house or transitional placement out in the community, uh, um, there's testing that's conducted on the mm -hmm. offenders. So I, I am confident mm -hmm. that the mass testing and the amount of testing that we do will identify those hot zones uh, um, real quick and then sending our uh, resources mm -hmm. to the problem to try to contain it. Uh, Commissioner, going back to the mass, who is mandated to wear masks within a correctional facility? So staff members are mandated to wear masks uh, and the inmate population are mandated to wear masks. And that's by the executive order from the uh, from Governor Lamont. Uh, within that executive order, uh, uh, um, it does have uh, a verbiage that if an individual is able to social distance, that uh, he or she does not have to wear the mask. I prefer for our staff and the inmate population uh, to wear the mask at all times. Uh, um, but, but those are those are the individuals that uh, uh, are mandated to wear the mask. Mm. You said that you prefer that staff and inmates wear them at all times. But are there instances where staff within your prisons are not wearing the mask? Is that problematic if they're going in and out uh, back to their homes and then coming back into your facilities? It's not just the you know, staff members not wearing the mask. Uh, uh, um, it's the offender population also not wearing the mask. Uh, um, there has been incidents. Uh, uh, where our staff member and our inmate population is not wearing the mask. And uh, uh, it's like a weekly, daily reminder uh, uh, when I communicate to the leadership team, uh, my leadership team, and when we're communicating with the young wardens at the facility, that this is a top priority, that it has to be addressed daily from shift to shift, hour to hour, uh, uh, with both the, uh, the staff and the inmate population. Uh, um, I have seen, uh, um, just like out in the community, uh, COVID fatigue, mass fatigue. Uh, uh, we've been at this since, uh, uh, um, since March. Uh, so there's some fatigue. And I would say that the, uh, that the inmate population has been very helpful and cooperative. And so has those correctional officers and the correctional staff that uh, uh, come into uh, uh, these correctional facilities because uh, uh, they're just as concerned as anybody else, uh, uh, concerned as the MA population. Uh, um, at the end, uh, they got to go home to their loved ones too. And so they're, they're doing everything they can to prevent the spread from the disease. But there is some fatigue. And uh, um, we have, as a commissioner, I have to acknowledge that because uh, it is happening out in the community also um, and just continue to reinforce, to reinforce the importance of social distancing, the importance of wearing the mask in order to stop the spread. 
I imagine it's difficult to be, have social distancing in a prison. You have only so much space. Uh, I'm just curious uh, when you say that you continue to work with your staff and inmates uh, to battle COVID fatigue, uh, so to speak, uh, some of the challenges of that, Commissioner. There's always going to be a, a challenge in the correctional uh, um, setting. Um, I think the challenge that we faced back in March 2020, the first wave, uh, uh, was a lot harder. As I look at the second uh, wave, it's a lot, lot harder because uh, uh, um, there was more offenders. When I looked at the count this morning, we had a little bit over 9,300. Uh, uh, since March 1st to, uh, um, to, to Friday, last Friday, um, we had, we've released over 4,301 offender out into the uh, some form of supervision. Uh, we sent 1,646 offenders out on transitional supervision. That means that that offender uh, uh, had a, uh, an approved sponsor, an approved home to go to. So those individuals are out in the community. Uh, we sent another 1,416 into the halfway house uh, uh, release. So they went from a facility to a halfway house. And then we went into the halfway house and we looked for individuals, number one, that were working, had stable employment, and number two, had a sponsor out in the community. We've moved 1,242 out into the community. And then based on my uh, um, statutory power that I have, I've granted 299 90-day uh, re-entry furloughs. Uh, so uh, that has helped us with uh, uh, spacing and particularly the dorm settings. Uh, the three facilities that are remain to be a challenge with the dorm settings are the county jails and that's the uh, census population. Uh, um, that we have, and we're looking uh, uh, right now, we're probably like at 85% capacity in those dorms. We're looking to try to mirror uh, what we've done in the census dorms, where if we drop that population probably by 50% to have more um, space to social distance with the inmate population and staff. You're hearing Commissioner Angel Kiros. Uh, he leads the State Department of Correction uh, here in Connecticut. If you have a question for Commissioner Kiros, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Deborah's calling in from Meriden. Deborah, what's your question? Good morning, Commissioner. I have a question. I understand the importance of mask wearing for staff and your resident population. However, there are times when they're being asked to remove their staff, such as during strip searches after their legal visits, specifically when they squat and cough. Is there a reason you would ask them to remove that mask while coughing? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, so uh, we're very concerned with the uh, with COVID um, with COVID nineteen. Uh, and there's a balance. There's a balancing act that we have to maintain to maintain social uh, 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 safety and security inside a correctional facility. So we will not deviate from our policies when it comes to uh, a strip search after a visit uh, uh, with contact with visitors. Uh, uh, I have to make sure that uh, uh, our policies are followed so that there's no breach of security uh, uh, happening. So um, that policy will remain in place. Is that, uh, I guess I, I can understand why Deborah is asking that question, uh, Commissioner Kiros, this idea that uh, you're having staff, I'm sorry, that taking off masks during these strip searches, specifically when they cough. And is that concerning when we think about the way COVID is spread? It, 
it, it, it is concerning. You are maintaining uh, uh, the six feet distance and probably in some instance, based on the AP uh, uh, admission discharge room setting, you probably can even have eight to 10 feet, uh, uh, but it's being done safely so that the offender is not coughing in the face of, uh, 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 of the staff member. Uh, you mentioned uh, visits. Let's let's uh, start there. When we think about that, uh, so many families weren't able to visit their loved ones uh, during the peak of the pandemic. I understand that that has now started non-contact social visits as of October fifteenth. Uh, how is that going? And and how how are inmates and families able to see each other? Considering you have to also be wary of social distancing. So let me start by uh, uh, by saying that uh, as a commission, I believe that uh, uh, that family engagement, that family support plays an integral, huge part in the individual uh, um, be successful out in the community. And it starts by uh, um, those visits in our correctional settings. And I have to say that uh, uh, our DMA, uh, the, uh, the offender population has, they have been great in uh, understanding um, the measures that we have taken to protect them and protect their loved ones. Uh, uh, so on October 15, we started the first phase of uh, non-contact visits in 11 out of the 14 um, correctional facilities uh, because of the COVID uptick in Hartford CC at Gardner CI in, New in Newtown. And um, Osborne summer, uh, we've put those uh, facilities in uh, operational phase three, so there's no visits. Um, we came in with a 50% re reduction in capacity. Uh, the same procedures that a staff member entering a correctional facility goes through with temperature checks and a uh, mask wearing and, uh, and then maintaining social distancing. Uh, all this, all the, uh, uh, um, the visits are pre-scheduled online. Uh, uh, um, they'll email the contact person at each facility and the visits will be established. Uh, that was important for me. I did not want to have, say, uh, um, at New Haven CC, 100 family members showing up on day one in the lobby and not being able to maintain social distancing. So pre-schedule was the right way uh, to go. The first four days, uh, of the visits, we had over 336 members uh, um, that came in and saw their loved ones. Um, this morning, around 11 o'clock, I will receive the figures uh, uh, for the for the for the last week, and I'm hoping that uh, uh, it's a lot higher. Uh, it's been uh, it's been accepted uh, uh, with open arms by the inmate population. We're in the process of trying to uh, um, finalize the um, social visits on teams. Uh, and uh, um, this was important for me that we provide an avenue for the uh, population to see the loved ones uh, in case that when COVID, um, second wave of COVID shuts down the whole state that uh, uh, I'm providing them uh, opportunity to visits with a loved one via teams. Uh, this is a free to the uh, inmate population, free to the family members. I thought that was important for me. I can easily went with the uh, vendor and started up the tablets and uh, um, and had visits during the tablets, but that's going to be a cost to the family, to the uh, loved ones. So 
to me, I thought that the free route was better. Uh, um, one thing COVID-19 did for the Department of Correction, it exposed us on the lack of technology that we have in corrections. So uh, um, right in June, mid-June, we started going into the 14 correctional facilities and wiring up each facility so that we can enhance the technology uh, to take advantage of the technology, was, uh, in particular the social visits and more video conferences uh, 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 for the courts, for the public defender's offices. So, mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that by the end of November, I can be real close, uh, or if not by the end of November, have a couple facilities up on the uh, uh, video visitation. You're talking about free video visitation uh, for inmates and relatives to speak to each other. Again, you're hearing uh, Commissioner Angel Kiros. He leads the State Department of Correction. We'll continue talking with him after the break. You can join our conversation as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel broadcasting remotely. Today, my guest is Department of Correction Commissioner Angel Kiros. Governor Lamont nominated him to this position uh, last month, and the Connecticut General Assembly is expected to take up his nomination during the regular session that starts in January. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Commissioner Kiros, we talked about uh, the second wave starting up here in our state, and naturally there are are people in the community that would like to see their loved ones uh, possibly released uh, early, uh, especially if they're nonviolent offenders? You talked about discretionary releases a little bit earlier, uh, but Deborah wanted to know, um, is there any reason why those eligible for parole within the next several months, which also includes flu season, can't be released early to aid in the control and elimination of COVID in the DOC system? So from the, um, from the onset, in March, uh, we were very careful on our releases as far as uh, we were not gonna jeopardize public safety. Uh, we were not gonna jeopardize uh, uh, public health. Uh, we were gonna maintain the process that were in place and expedite the process. Uh, uh, when it comes to compassionate uh, um, release, uh, just wanna be clear so that the audience understands uh, um, my responsibility in the DOC, my responsibility in the DOC is to identify the individuals um, that will be reviewed by our medical, one of our doctors uh, to figure if he or she uh, is eligible as far as medical, uh, uh, you know, can we provide the medical attention that this individual uh, um, needs based on the uh, stage of the illness uh, um, he or she may be experiencing. Um, if the answer is yes, then that package is forward to um, BOPP, the Board of Pardons and Parole, where uh, the chairperson and his uh, uh, committee will review the uh, um, the packages, uh, the information, and then have a hearing. And then they are the ones to uh, um, to make the, the decision on releasing individuals out into the community. Um, based on my statute or statutory authority, I did uh, grant to 299 offenders a 90-day re-entry on furlough to get them closer to those release dates uh, to TS, transitional supervision, out in the uh, in the community. Hmm. I understand that seven out of 10 
inmates within our state prison system are black or Hispanic. And we think about discretionary release. How are your decisions and those involved um, helping to reduce racial disparities, this idea that um, maybe more inmates uh, that are being granted discretionary release who are white versus those who are, are people of color, Commissioner? I've heard that, uh, that statement been mentioned before, and uh, I'm a data-driven individual, so I went to the data on these individuals, uh, the 4,300 that um, we released, and it mirrors uh, 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 the uh, um, the numbers of the individuals coming into the system. 65% um, of, of the releases were individuals that were people of color, and another 33% were white individuals, and then another one or two percent were Asian and Native American. Um, so that mirrored exactly uh, at the front end of the system. However, uh, uh, as a commissioner, I have a responsibility and a duty to make sure that uh, uh, I'm taking a look at our policies uh, and procedure to make sure that uh, uh, um, that we're not con contributing uh, uh, to those biases based on policies and, and procedures that, uh, um, that we have in place. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that uh, you were named interim commissioner back in the summer, and uh, you've been working for the DOC, I believe, for 30 years. Uh, when you look at uh, the way our state uh, prison system has changed uh, in the last few decades, just looking at population alone, you know, you still there are many people of color that are within uh, those prisons. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you look to your nomination being confirmed in the General Assembly uh, uh, next year. Do you see, what do you see your role um, as commissioner? Do you see yourself as a reformer? So let's, uh, um, criminal justice reform is here. Uh, and I was very uh, upfront during the interview process that I need to be at the table when it comes to uh, um, criminal justice uh, um, reform. Uh, in order to uh, 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 to make some changes to these inadequacies, uh, uh, we have to review policies that have been in place uh, for 20, uh, 30 years uh, uh, since I've been in the agency and, uh, 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 and see what changes are ne necessary to be at the table. But I definitely want to be at the table. You say I, I came in in 1989 when the uh, 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 Basically, it was lock them up and throw away the key. There was no uh, funding for programmings and uh, the citizen of the state of Connecticut did not want these individuals back out in the community. The politicians did not want these individuals in the community. They were victimizing individuals. Then in 2003, there was a shift. Um, they started noticing that these individuals were coming back out into society and wanted correction to uh, uh, reinvest in these individuals. And that's when we started with the uh, uh, re-entry piece uh, reintegration back into the community in order for them to be successful. And it was at that point that we started seeing more funding uh, uh, for programming. Uh, and here we are in 2020 uh, with criminal justice reform, uh, uh, with, which I believe that, uh, uh, and I stated at the beginning that I wanna be at, that, at the table. I wanna bring changes uh, 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 into corrections. I wanna bring changes um, to the inmate population I want to provide them with a skill sets and opportunity uh, for them to be uh, successful out in the community and definitely want to be at the table because we have to do this uh, the right way. Uh, uh, there's no shortcuts. There's no fast track. Uh, uh, it's got to be uh, uh, well thought out uh, uh, and for the safety of, uh, uh, of the offender population 
and for the safety of our staff it's got to be well thought out but i believe that uh, uh we will be at that table and i'm looking forward for my confirmation uh, uh so we can get that job started when you talk about changes uh, within uh, the prison system to help inmates uh, re-enter, what do you mean? What are some of the changes you'd like to see as commissioner so that uh, recidivism is lower, so that when people are released, they have uh, are able to get a job and, and a good place to live, commissioner? The best example I can give you, uh, prior to COVID, I had A offenders that were out on a work, work furlough program that work for Rick uh, Witchcraft up in Ashford, Connecticut. Uh, these are manufacturing jobs. So I would sign off on their work furlough. A staff member would escort them, uh, say around two o'clock, they'll start, they'll start to leave from Summers, the Willis-Cybolsky facility. They'll travel to Ashford, Connecticut. Um, they worked a whole second shift and, and, and come back. These individuals, when they were um, discharging, uh, uh, were discharging with job offers up to $50,000 a year to start. To me, that's that's what I'm looking at. Those are meaningful opportunity, a skill set that we can provide to our population. So when they when they're out there, they have a better opportunity to succeeding. Um, I look at Michigan DOC, the villages, which is a vocational uh, 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 manufacturing um, school inside a correctional facility, and uh, uh, where there's classroom activities, there's collaboration with a. Uh, um, where owners, manufacturer owners out in the community and they bring the hands-on inside your um, correctional facility. I'm looking at hopefully to be able to have, reallocate some of my um, line item uh, uh, savings into such program where uh, I can bring the same concept into the Connecticut Department of Correction and provide the uh, population with a skill set. Prior to COVID, when I would go on the uh, Department of Labor's uh, website, there was a lot of jobs uh, uh, opening when it came to manufacturing. And Connecticut was making a comeback in the manufacturing and uh, uh, the owners were actually uh, 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 seeking and encouraging people to enter that field. So I think that's a big opportunity for Connecticut and for this population to take advantage of. And again, meaningful skill set to land a great mm-hmm. job. When we talk about uh, savings, uh, one way to do that is to continue to close prisons in our state. I understand the state's total prison and jail population is uh, 9,534. That's a 31-year low. I'm getting those numbers from the governor's office. And so as commissioner, uh, which prisons would you look to close next if we see, uh, again, uh, the number of, uh, of inmates that are markedly lower uh, than in previous decades? So let me be clear, uh, um, there will be facility closures in the upcoming uh, budget year, 21, 22, and 22, 23. Um, What I will not do as a commissioner is uh, um, inform the media what facilities are closing prior to me getting in my vehicle and driving to the facility and talking to the staff face-to-face, letting them know that the uh, facility closure is happening, and then going out to the media. Uh, uh, facility closures uh, uh, um, are difficult to do. Um, based on my experience, uh, uh, I've been involved probably five to six facility closures. So I know that if you don't do it right, uh, um, there can be uh, uh, um, 
it can be very difficult. So I want to make sure that we do it right. I want to make sure that the staff are informed prior to me going out to the media, making it publicly. But I've been transparent with the unions. I've been transparent with the staff members when I visit the uh, facilities that there will be uh, facility closures. My focus right now is to get through the second wave of COVID of 2019 uh, 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 and making sure that the offender uh, population is healthy, making sure that the uh, um, our staff members stay healthy. Uh, I have spoken to the governor and my boss and uh, um, those conversations should start early March of 2021. And at that point, I will make it public, uh, uh, but there will be, there will be uh, uh, um, several facility closures. You're hearing Commissioner Angel Quiros. He leads the Department of Correction. If you have a question, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I understand what you're saying, Commissioner, that you want to be thoughtful in this process, talking with staff to figure out uh, which facility should close. I, I I am curious about your plans for Northern. This is the maximum security prison. I understand you were warden there for a few years. That's an example of a prison where its population is down significantly, but there are also issues with the conditions at that prison. I believe a judge uh, mentioning uh, the smell of sewage uh, within uh, those uh, that prison, uh, plumbing issues. Uh, I'm just curious if you could talk about a Northern um, in this uh, possible potential closures in the future and the need for having a place like this anymore. Yes, um, um, so that's, that's the million dollar question uh, that I'm faced with uh, when it comes to uh, um, Northern. Um, I will tell you this, um, so there's four facilities uh, which I cannot close. So I cannot close your correctional institution that's the only female prison, and I cannot close the uh, um, three county jails, Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport, because that's for the unsentenced population. Every other facility is on the, uh, it, 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 every other facility is on the book for me to review and for me to make a, 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 a determination of uh, which facility closures uh, uh, I'm going to make. Uh, I'm listening to everybody. I'm listening to the staff. I'm listening to the advocacy groups. I'm listening to the uh, uh, elected officials. Uh, um, just listen to everybody. I take it in. As a commissioner, uh, uh, I must listen to our staff. I must listen to those advocacy groups. I must listen to the elected official and then make a decision. Uh, 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 Northern came in, Northern came in uh, um, uh, online in 1994, um, where we were experiencing uh, disturbances, disturbance, riots, serious assault on staff. Uh, and when we opened it up, when we opened up Northern, I think the last disturbance was in 1995, Carl Robinson, when we had two offenders that, uh, 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 that were murdered on that compound. Um, so Northern has served a critical, uh, it's served a critical role for us to maintaining safety and security at all of our 14 uh, correctional facilities. However, as a commissioner, uh, 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 now I have to make that decision when I'm reviewing every facilities to see uh, uh, um, which facilities uh, will be closed. Let's take some listener calls for DOC Commissioner Angel Kiros. Again, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Leroy's calling from New Haven. Leroy, are you there? Leroy, can you hear me? 
Yes, I am, ma'am. Yes, could you uh, quickly ask your question to the commissioner? Yes. Uh, my question is, because Osborne Correctional Jail um, is known for being um, unprofessional and are displaying abuse of people's civil rights, I said civil rights while presently, um, I said the pending lawsuits that are um, existing have not been resolved. I want to know if they're selling the people the face mask. If a person can't afford a face mask, do they throw them in seg? My other question is, are prisoners being made, I'm saying, to experience pre-COVID physical suffering symptoms and charge $3 and only being given Moktrums? They're supposed to be their DOC cure-all drug. Uh, Commissioner, so the first question, uh, he wants to know if inmates have to pay for their own masks, and if they don't have a mask, what happens to them? Well, inmates are, are not paying for the mask. Uh, um, masks are free to the inmate population. Um, we went into an agreement with the ACLU of providing uh, um, two free masks, I believe is uh, uh, either weekly or biweekly um, for the inmate population. So there's no charge uh, for offenders to wear masks. Uh, as far as co-payment, uh, early on in the COVID first wave, we suspended uh, co-payment uh, uh, for individuals. So individuals have not been paying that $3 copay, uh, uh, co-payment um, since March of 2020. Uh, um, as we continue in the second wave, I have no desire to, uh, 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 to make the offended population start paying for the co-payment. Uh, um, you know, we're encouraging individuals to wear the mask uh, uh, you know, um, both staff and offender population. The last place I want an individual to end up is in restrictive housing unit uh, 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 um, for not wearing a mask. You know, so uh, um, uh, I'd be more than happy uh, um, for you, your, your listeners, if they have any names uh, of this happened to, to look for me to look, give me the opportunity to look further into the, uh, uh, the allegations, because there's usually uh, um, three sides to each story. As far as the unprofessional uh, uh, conduct, I have no desire to uh, uh, supervise staff that are going to be unprofessional uh, uh, to this population. Uh, um, I, I will be harsh with the discipline uh, uh, for unprofessional conduct. At the end of the day, 93% of this population currently here today, over 9,000, 93% will be back out in the communities, in society at the grocery stores, at the school functions, uh, at the mall, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, wanna, I want my uh, uh, correctional staff to be professional and have a professional uh, interaction with this human dignity uh, uh, in preparing these individuals uh, uh, um, to uh, enter uh, society mm. and, uh, and be successful and be successful. So that's uh, uh, what I try to, uh, uh, every opportunity I have when it's training or talking to the correctional staff is I want you to treat these individuals like human beings. Uh, I want to take another uh, quick call. Marie is calling in from Meriden. Marie, you're on the show. What's your question? Hi, data shows that the family contact visits are not luxury. Human touch helps reduce anxiety, stress, and blood pressure, leading to less disciplinary action reports. This ultimately helps to help the staff. Why is the um, Connecticut behind in our country on the expansion of family contact visits and in the fact we're putting up more barriers? Uh, what, what are you willing to do to change this? Commissioner? I didn't get the first part of the question, so... Uh, um... 
I think she was just talking about how uh, family contact is important for uh, mental health as well. And she wants to know if you can work on uh, have improving family contact uh, within uh, for inmates and their families. She said that Connecticut is behind other states in this. Absolutely. I, I think I said it before that uh, uh, to me, it's very important for uh, uh, the population that we supervise to maintain contact with a loved one while they're incarcerated. It's a great support system. Uh, uh, it does reduce stress uh, 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 for the individuals. Uh, uh, we have, prior to COVID, we went into two correctional uh, facilities, York and uh, Willis-Sybolski, and uh, uh, made that uh, uh, visiting room more family-oriented, where we brought in toys uh, 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 for the kids to play with while they were doing, um, having their visits with the loved ones. Uh, um, so we're moving towards, uh, uh, um, towards that direction where uh, uh, we can improve the overall quality of those engagement with the, uh, uh, with the families. I wanted to ask you, uh, before we run out of time, uh, Commissioner Kiros, you know, early on, uh, the the State Department of Correction was isolating uh, those uh, inmates who had gotten sick with COVID. They were sent, I believe, up to Northern. Uh, that has changed, but I wanted you just to update us on that, because as we talk about the second wave, you know, we anticipate more people in our communities will get sick, including uh, within your prisons. Yes, um, it, was, it was very important for us, the DOC and the uh, administration uh, to learn, to learn the data, uh, uh, the information that we learn about the COVID-19. Back in March, 2020, uh, there was not one correctional uh, uh, agency throughout the United States that really understood uh, uh, how deadly uh, uh, COVID-19 was gonna, uh, was gonna be. Uh, we started following CDC guidelines, DPH guidelines. When the guidelines came and say that you had to separate a symptomatic individual, uh, uh, you know, uh, we knew that we had to make we had to make a medical isolations room. So at that time, the best place to, um, to go was Northern. There was uh, four empty housing units. Uh, we didn't have to move population around and contribute to the spread at the facilities for moving the individuals. So the decision was made to go to Northern. Uh, um, once COVID was over, uh, once COVID declined uh, and back in June gave us the opportunity uh, uh, when we're touring the facility, talk to the population that became the most effective uh, positive COVID cases. And uh, uh, what, what I got back was a lot of them were scared and hiding their symptoms to, uh, um, to go to Northern. So what that did is contribute, contributed to the spread of the COVID-19 because the offenders are hiding their uh, uh, their symptoms. Um, prior to Commissioner Cook leaving, the decision was already made that we were moving away uh, uh, from Northern. And uh, he provided me with the um, direction to find a, a, um, a new location for this medical isolation unit. And when I took over as the interim commissioner, um, I uh, once I was introduced by the governor, I think within 10 days, I moved the, uh, um, medical isolation out of Una, out of Northern, and it's at McDougal Walker, uh, uh, is, uh, in a better setting, um, medical unit right on site in the housing unit, um, all cell, and provides me with the uh, uh, safeguards for the CDC guidelines on how to house a symptomatic individual. Mm -hmm. 
Again, you've been hearing Commissioner Angel Kiros here on Where We Live. He is the uh, the, the commissioner of the state department of correction i think the official title is commissioner designate because uh, your nomination still needs to be confirmed by the connecticut general assembly and we appreciate your time today answering our questions as well as our listeners commissioner thank you thank you this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk to Kellen Lyons, who's been covering the State Department of Correction. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we just heard from the commissioner of the State Department of Correction, Commissioner Angel Kiros. Uh, Connecticut Mirror's Kellen Lyons has been covering the DOC, and he joins us now on Zoom. Welcome back to the show, Kel. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I wanted to respond, you to respond uh, to what Commissioner Kiros shared. I guess starting with uh, it was an interesting call from a listener about uh, after um, visitation, uh, inmates uh, have to undergo strip searches, and I, I believe they were, the listener was saying that they are having to take the mask off and cough. That seems problematic when we think about how uh, COVID has spread. Yeah, that, that stuck out to me as well. Um, it, it, I've heard a decent amount from folks inside and family members about conditions regarding masks. Um, this is a, a, an executive order issued by the governor that Correction officers and those who can't uh, practice social distancing have to wear a mask, but not um, not if they're able to practice social distancing. So uh, I've talked to the commissioner before about how correction officers um, there's there's a progressive discipline structure if they if they violate that that executive order. Um, but if a correction officer is say walking through a hallway and and they are not within six feet of, of others, whether it's whether it's their correction officer, peers, medical staff, or um, an incarcerated person, they don't have to wear that that mask. So if they if they are unable to practice social distancing and they do it and they are not wearing a mask, um, they will be have like a talking to from the warden of that prison, and then they'll be shown the executive order, and then you know eventually they can be written up. Um, the last that I talked to the commissioner, nobody had been written up uh, or disciplined or suspended because of the mask use, and that was about six weeks ago. Um, but I've heard some conflicting reports about whether or not everybody is wearing them inside, and, it, and as we all know, it's, it's quite difficult to practice social distancing um, in the state correctional facilities. Um, at the end of the interview, we talked about how uh, they are now uh, sending uh, people who are sick with COVID to McDougal. And I'm just wondering how that's been going, this isolated unit at McDougal versus a Northern, which was problematic from the beginning. Yeah, that, that's a big change. Um, the commissioner acknowledged in, in his, um, not, I guess, the announcement of his nomination that, that they had found that incarcerated folks were hiding their symptoms to avoid being sent to Northern. Um, the, it's quite significant they're not sending them to Northern anymore because of medical isolation. A lot of guys inside were, were worried about not getting access to mail or being held in the more isolating facility over up at Northern. Um, I haven't heard recently about folks hiding their their symptoms in the same way, but also a lot of that was due to the lack of mass testing at the time earlier in the pandemic. It was perhaps easier for, for incarcerated folks to hide those symptoms because they weren't being tested as regularly. Um, now it seems as though there's not as much fear about being sent over to to the the most secure prison in the state um, 
since Northern is now off the table, at least for, mm-hmm. for the medical isolation unit. I understand uh, the DOC latest numbers. Are there 107 offenders who um, have tested positive for COVID-19, eight are symptomatic. And I'm wondering again, if we could uh, talk through when we think about uh, the mass testing, uh, Commissioner Kiros mentioned that uh, a few times, but I believe that was uh, the result of a settlement with the ACLU. Can you provide the context there? Yeah, so the ACLU reached a, a settlement with their federal lawsuit with the Department of Correction um, several months ago. Um, there were a lot of provisions in there regarding access to soap, PPE. Um, the department would have to prioritize certain incarcerated people for um, discretionary release provisions. Um, the mass testing was a piece of the the ACLU settlement. Um, and so they've gone through, I think, two or three rounds, and they're, they're beginning a new one, as the commissioner said, in, in two days on Wednesday. Um, so that the, the DOC will say that that's a huge uh, help as far as identifying cases and trying to isolate folks who, who wind up getting virus and figuring out their quarantining protocols and such. Mm. Uh, we spent some time talking about uh, his plans on future closures of facilities, and you know, he said that he couldn't get into that uh, right now. But I wanted you to talk through with your reporting. Um, he mentioned Northern, but some other potential uh, prisons that may be on uh, that list uh, come 2021. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. He, he was talking about how there are four that are that he cannot close and he identified york which is the state's only women's prison and then the county jails hartford new haven and bridgeport um those are the primarily house the unsentenced population and and those tend to have the biggest um churn people coming in and out um the but he did not mention manson youth institution which is a prison that houses the youngest uh, people in the in the prison system including children um there's about on any given day, there's around 50 or so kids, meaning under 18, who are incarcerated at Manson. Uh, and, and that's a prison that was under investigation by the Department of Justice uh, for its conditions of confinement for children. And the state's um, three branches of government are, are in the process of hashing out an idea for the next legislative session on how to take pre-sentenced kids out of the adult system. Um, so that would take a bunch of children out of the adult system and leave the sentenced kids. And if you if you cut you know, any number from 50, you're, you're, you're spitting distance from getting all of the children out of the system entirely. Um, so it stuck out to me that that was not one that he had mentioned simply because um, he did say closure. So he, he, mm-hmm. he used the plural. So uh, it, it appears as though Manson is, or Northern rather, is not the only one that, that's potentially on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you um, how uh, correction officers uh, within the, the state prison system, how do they view Commissioner uh, Kiros? Again, he's someone that's come up through the system. He's worked there for 30 years at least. And I'm just wondering in terms of what his uh, management style is, uh, do they respect him? And do you, how do you foresee uh, these negotiations going in the future when they think about closing more prisons? Yeah, the, the corrections unions uh, seem to like him. I mean, he he came up from, he worked his way from the bottom on up. Um, he started 31 years ago, he started as a CO, and now he's he's up at the top of the system. Um, I mean, he knows this, he knows the systems quite well. He is, he spent his whole career here in Connecticut, so he knows how to talk with the unions in a way that perhaps the previous commissioner um, was, was less adept at. And I think that they are wary of of the closures. I mean, I, I think Northern specifically is seen by a lot of different things, by a lot of different people. Um, the corrections officers, um, the ones that I've talked to have said that they see Northern's function as, as adaptable. You know, it's a place that houses some of the most the people who commit acts of violence, as well as some of the folks who, who, who 
were sick during COVID. Um, advocates see it as this place that is just really dehumanizing. It, it, it exacerbates mental health conditions. Um, but it, it seems as though a lot of the correction officers see Northern as, as, a, as a viable tool for them to try to help deter violence in the prison system. They argue that it, uh, it, it it's a, it's a, they argue that it's a system of deterrence to try to keep folks from committing acts of violence against correction officers or incarcerated, their incarcerated peers. Um, I, I think that that's the looming fight that, that's coming up is whether or not the unions are, what, what negotiations are going to have to have to happen between the unions to get these facilities to close. Um, the commissioner has told me that he, that, that this is such a delicate dance because you're, you're kind of, you're messing with the routine of those who are in who are in the union. You know, folks who who put their 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 loved ones on the bus, their kids on the bus every morning before they go to school, or they have a longer commute, or their shift starts at a different time, um, or they you know they're just operating from a place of comfort where they've lived they've worked in those facilities for such a long time. Um, so I think that that's that's going to be one of the among the biggest challenges that he's facing as he mm -hmm. tries to figure out which to close. Kellen Lyons, again, is a criminal justice and mental health reporter uh, for the Connecticut Mirror. He does a uh, great work covering uh, departments like the Department of Correction. We'll be sure to link to your many stories uh, at Where We Live. Kel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Again, uh, thanks to our other producer, Carmen Baskoff, on the phones today. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>